right, it's 9.30, we're ready to get going. Let's pray and we'll dive into God's Word together. Father, we come before you this morning um, looking to understand what you have for us in the book of Romans, and we just ask for your blessing. We ask that you would illuminate our minds, that we'd be able to understand the truth of your Word. pray you just give us a, a clarity that we, can, that we can see exactly what you have for us. We thank you for this book, for the teaching that is in it. And we ask all of this in, in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to have something that happens today that is, I don't think ever happened before and probably will never happen again. So I'm teaching on something that Pastor John is going to preach on. <laughs> so we are doing Romans chapter 1 through 4 today. So for the next four weeks, we are doing four chapters of Romans each week. It means we'll do a double read of a chapter each week in our reading plan. And so at some point, since we do New Testament on Sunday morning worship, we are bound to have an intersection. So today's the day. So a special day. So I, as I said to him this morning, it's going to be so brief that there's not going to be any duplication. So you can't leave for morning worship. You've got to stay. All right. So we just finished the book of Acts. And based on what we learned in Acts, we saw the church established. What would you say that the purpose of the church is. What was the purpose of the church that we saw in Acts? Temi. Yes, absolutely. We see that right up front in Acts chapter one. And Jesus commissions the apostles and the disciples and says, go preach the gospel. Go be a witness for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And then we see that played out throughout the entire book. So Paul wasn't there at that moment. Paul is the author of our book of Romans. Uh, but Paul is, we, we find out Paul's conversion story in the book of Acts. And then as the gospel is spreading, there's too many threads. You have to pick somebody's story to follow. And Paul's story is the one that the book of Acts follows. In Acts chapter 18, we saw that some believers came from Rome, specifically a couple, Priscilla and Aquila, and they connect with Paul in Corinth, and they spend a lot of time together. And they have the same profession, and so they are, you can just kind of imagine them sitting around, you know, whatever their workspace was, and they're working on tents, and they're talking. And what do you think they talked about? I think they talked about the gospel. What else might they have talked about? What would you talk about if you were working with someone and you never worked and you're just sitting there and it's manual labor, so you're, you know, you're sewing your tent or you're cutting the fabric or whatever? You're going to sit in silence for 18 months? Yeah. You're going to talk about the gospel? What else? Okay, everyone at once. <laughs> Mike. Families. Craig. Business. Your husband. Yeah. He's a good guy to talk about. You're going to talk about life, right? You're going to talk about, hey, Priscilla and Aquila, what was Rome like? You came from there, right? Is there a church there? How did you meet Jesus? I think Paul learned a lot about Rome from Priscilla and Aquila. We see at the very end of the book of Romans. We'll have to wait for that. But he, he, he sends greetings to them. So that gives us a clue that Priscilla and Aquila are no longer in Corinth or Ephesus where they went with him, but they're now back in Rome, and he has a lot of affection for them. 
because they had developed a close bond by working together and having a common purpose in the gospel. Initially, when, when I saw that, I was thinking, oh, that must have been where Paul wrote Romans because he's hearing about the Roman church and all this. But that's not what the scholars say, and there's evidence of it, and we're not going to trace it through. But the thought, and that time period was in Paul's second missionary journey in chapter 18. If you go another chapter or two, I think it's 20, is the third missionary journey. And there's a very brief mention that Paul spent three months in Greece. And the scholars, commentators think that that is when Paul wrote Romans, and he probably wrote it from Corinth. So I put a question mark on this slide as the location of the writing and the timing of the writing, uh, because it's not for sure, but that's kind of what the thought is. That expulsion from Rome under Emperor Claudius took place in AD 49, so that's when Priscilla and Aquila would have gone to Corinth in the first place, and then uh, Claudius died and Jews started to go back to Rome uh, because he no longer had expelled them. And so they were probably back there at that point in, in that decade. So we see Paul writing. We'll see as we get into some of the questions today that he's writing to Roman believers. Um, the form of the writing is not just a um, letter, but is a letter that is a treatise. So Paul is more than just sending greetings and advice. He is sending doctrine, and he is sending truckloads of doctrine to them. This book is rich, rich, rich with doctrinal principles, and we'll be diving into some of those as we take this flyby of Romans. Um, And I am so glad that we are doing it on Sunday morning worship so that you don't have to just have this flyby, but we have an in-depth study as we go. And so there's going to be a few times during the next four weeks that I'm going to say, if you have further questions about it, that we can wait for Pastor John to cover it in morning worship. (laughs) What were the reasons for writing this? Um, Did Paul just have an itch to um, write a treatise on all of this doctrine? Well, maybe that's possible. He certainly does a lot of expounding on the gospel and all of its ramifications and the wonderful doctrines that flow out of it. But as we get into the book, we'll see that there, there appears to have been some divisions between Jews and Gentiles in the Roman church. And so he is aiming at healing those divisions. And the way to heal the division is the gospel. That's where the healing takes place because that's the point of unity. And so he shows how the gospel brings the Jew together, brings the Gentile together, and helps them to learn um, about it. So we are going to jump right into um, the questions here. Whoops, I had one more slide on the theme. So the theme, as I'm proposing it, is the gospel. Commentators have a variety of ideas about this. Some say it's righteousness, which... I, I, could, I could have a hard time arguing. Some say that it's the, the healing of the division is the theme. I, I think that that really is a subsidiary thought. Um, the, the ESV study Bible had this quote, which I thought was great. The theme of Romans is the revelation of God's judging and saving righteousness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So a little more full explanation of um, the theme. And then we'll see these key words, gospel, righteousness, faith, Uh, played out in the key verses of chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, which actually includes all of the the key words. If you like to mark in your Bible, 
I would say, as you read it, look for these key words. Get some colored pencils. Use a different color for each of these words, and so you can follow them as they go through. And I think you'll see how, how they play out. Um, another synonym for faith would be believe. So if, you, if you're doing that, I would say use the same color for faith and believe. Outline of the book in just these four chapter chunks that we're gonna be dealing with. I'm kind of ignoring the introduction and the conclusion from this outline, um, but, and there's different ways to outline the book, but tr and trying to keep it within the context of how we're reading it. This is the outline that I've, I've put together. And it is based on the gospel, so the gospel makes God's righteousness available to everyone in that first segment. That's what we're gonna be looking at today and then the gospel provides new life in Christ, talking about the very practical effects of the gospel in chapters five through eight. Then some, probably the hardest three chapters in the book, um, God's, the, the gospel um, implements God's sovereignty in chapters nine through 11. It doesn't break cleanly there, just three chapters. And then um, the fourth is applicational chapters and how the gospel transforms believers to be like Jesus Christ, how he makes a difference in daily practical living. So we'll be just dealing with this first one today, of the gospel making God's righteousness available. So chapter one, I've entitled, The Gospel is the Answer to Every Person's Sin Problem. Every person's sin problem is a problem. The gospel is a word that means good news, good tidings. It's the good message. The um, transliteration of the Greek word is evangelon, which looks a lot like evangelist or evangelize. And so when we tell people about the gospel, we are evangelizing them. We are telling them the good news. This may sound familiar with what the angel said to the shepherds in that field in Bethlehem in Luke chapter two. He said, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to who? Just the Jews? No, all people. Why? Why was this good news? What was this good news that he brought to them? For there is born today in Bethlehem, a savior. The good news is that there is a savior that answers our sin problem. The gospel is every person's, the gospel is the answer to every person's sin problem. That word good news that the angel used is the same word as gospel. He could have said, I'm bringing the gospel of great joy to you. The translation helps us to understand what he was saying. So let's get into our questions here now. The word gospel is used four times in chapter one, and it's used a bunch of times at the end of the book. So it kind of puts these bookends around the entire book. And what we wanna do in our first set of questions is what was Paul saying about the gospel right off the bat? This first one, I think is probably the most oblique, but let's, let's just talk about it. What does it mean that Paul that was set apart for the gospel in chapter one, verse one? Claire. For the purpose of the gospel? For the purpose of the gospel, right. Okay, anybody else? Yeah. 
Yes, right. So very specific selection of Paul, training Paul, giving him this ministry. That's great. In verse 9, what is Paul's relationship to the gospel here? He's a slave to the gospel, right. He's a minister. He's a servant of the gospel. It talks about his relationship is that he's serving God through giving the gospel. Then verse 15. Let's just read that one. Have somebody read verse 15 for us. So we get a lot here in this little verse. What was Paul eager to do with the gospel? It's right there. He was eager to preach it. I found this kind of convicting. <laughs> what am I eager to do today? Am I eager to take a nap this afternoon, to eat a cheeseburger? You know, I'm thinking all of these things that are just like selfish, you know, personal desires. If you talk to Paul and you said, Paul, what are you eager to do? He's like, I'm eager to preach the gospel. That's what I want to do. That's my heartfelt desire. Whew, man. Do you get up every day with that engine running? Hmm. I need more of that. That's what Paul was eager to do. There was this anticipation, this desire on his part. Why? Because he was a slave to the gospel. He was a slave to God. And this is what God told him to do. He was set apart for this purpose. There's a lot of application here for us. We are called just as much as the disciples in Acts 1 to be witnesses in our Jerusalems, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, wherever we go. We should have an eagerness. There shouldn't be a dread to give the gospel. And why should it not be dreaded? That's the next question. Why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel? It's powerful, right? How can you be ashamed of something that is so incredible? Why would you be eager to preach something unless it was incredible? He was eager, he was courageous, he was bold, he wasn't ashamed because of the power of God that was being made manifest through the gospel. He couldn't stay in his seat. He had to get up and talk. He had to get up and preach what God had told him to. Where did he want to do it? He wanted to do it in Rome. Missed one thing in, in, in verse 15 that I wanted to point out. So he said he's eager to preach the gospel to who? To you. To you that are in Rome. He doesn't say, I want to come and preach the gospel to all your neighbors, to all your coworkers, to all your friends. He says, I want to preach it to you. He's talking to the church. He's talking to believers. Like, huh. So you're telling me the gospel's not just for the unsaved. Yeah, that's what Paul is telling us. The gospel's for us. Why? How does a believer need the gospel? We got the gospel. We believed it already. We can certainly learn more about God. I'm sorry, sure. We don't go astray. We don't go astray. Yes. So the gospel can help us continue in our walk with the Lord. <clears throat> it helps us to see ourselves in the light that is accurate. 
that even though we have been saved, even though we've believed, we're still sinners and we can still sin and we still need Jesus. We need him. We need him to help us walk with, with him. So why was Paul not ashamed? It was because of the power of the gospel. <coughs> you might think about some of the Jewish believers that he was um, writing to, and they may be thinking of God's power in different ways. They might be saying to their Gentile friend next to them, you want to know about God's power? Look in the Old Testament. Look at what God did. Look how mighty he was. He parted the Red Sea. He created the universe. He took down Jericho's walls with a trumpet blast. He domesticated lions. And perhaps some of the New Testament believers would say, you want to talk power? How about somebody walking on water or feeding 5,000 people with a couple of loaves and fishes or raising the dead? Now that's power. But all of those powerful acts are temporary. The powerful act that we're talking about here is the gospel and it's eternal. It saves a soul forever. It makes us completely right with God. It is not only the power of of God for salvation, verse 16, but it says in verse 17, for it, it refers to the gospel, He could have said, for the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, because the righteous live by faith. So really, he's giving two reasons why he's not ashamed. One, it's powerful. Two, it reveals the righteousness of God. We're going to have a bunch of theological terms as we go through this book. Righteousness is one of them. Righteousness is a right relationship with God. It's more than just being right. It is a judicial conclusion. It is a verdict. Judicial conclusion of having met the standard of God's holiness. Salvation then is the act by which a sinner is made righteous. Comes into conformity with God's standard. And the key to accessing that is, we're given this at the end of the verse, is faith. So why is God's righteousness so important? Well, the rest of chapter 1 tells us that, and Ty already preached it, so we're not going to go into it in more detail. But it's because the unrighteousness of man is what is the focal point of God's wrath. God's righteousness is really critical, and we all need it. So the end of chapter 1 explains the accountability of all mankind to God and the corrosive effect of sin in society generally, and in individuals specifically. And with that, we move on to chapter 2. Chapter 2 I've entitled, God Will Judge Every Person, Including Jews Who Try to Keep the Law. So let's look at our questions here. Verse 4. How, do we, how is God's kindness described in verse 4? Okay, maybe that question was too oblique. So verse 4 says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? So he's saying that God's kindness is rich. 
It reminded me of Exodus 34, 6, where God says, God explains his character, and he said he is, he is abounding in steadfast love. He is great in mercy and love. His steadfast love never stops. This is his kindness to us. So his kindness then is intended, at the end of verse 4, it's meant to lead you to repentance. So don't misinterpret God's patience. Don't misinterpret God's kindness in waiting and not judging people immediately. He would have been just when Adam and Eve sinned if he would have judged them immediately. But in his patience and kindness, he decided not to, sent you. Yes, he is absolutely patient with us. How else have you experienced God's kindness and salvation? There's lots of times we sin that there is no immediate consequence. And even though our sins are covered by the blood of Christ as believers, sometimes there are practical effects of our sin that just that come because of what we do. There's consequences to what we do. Sometimes we sin and we deserve those consequences, which may not even be the judgment of God, but for some reason God withholds those. I think kindness and salvation is, is seeing that God drew us to salvation in the first place. His kindness was so rich that he said to you, maybe as a young person, I want you to be a believer and glorify me through your entire life. Maybe as an older person, God drew you to salvation and said, I want you to know me and be a testimony of my grace, even at your age. According to verse 13, move on to the next question. Who is it that will be justified? The doers of the law. Okay, so this is, uh, this is a little troubling. Verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. <clears throat> now, before we can get into the next question, I think we need to talk about what does justified mean. Here's another one of those theological terms. There's an old saying, which I think is helpful to help us remember it. Justified means just as if I'd never sinned. Justified is an acquittal. You know what an acquittal is. So someone is arrested, they're put on trial for doing a crime, and the jury comes back and says, we find the defendant to be not guilty. Interestingly, they don't say innocent. Isn't that curious? Well, they don't really know if he's innocent, but the evidence wasn't enough to prove that he's guilty, so we say that he is not guilty. This is more than that. This is innocent. Not because we didn't do it, but because Jesus paid for it. Justified is to be declared righteous. Declared righteous. God sees a sinner, he takes the blood of Christ, and he says, I see Jesus. I declare you to be righteous before me because of him. So how in the world does that fit with this verse? 
Because this verse sounds like you can do stuff to be justified. Well, let's look at exactly what it says. And this shows the danger of taking a verse and plucking it out and just looking at it by itself. You really have to look at the whole context of, of, the, of the verses. So verse 13 is saying that the person who is justified is, is not someone who just hears the law, doesn't just hear do not kill, but actually does the law. They don't kill. So does this mean that someone can be saved by doing the law? Theoretically, if someone kept every aspect of the law every second of every day of their life, they would be justified. Has anybody ever done that? Just one. Just one. Because the moment you break one law, you're no longer innocent. You're now guilty. So you mean that one little white lie I told is just as bad as Adolf Hitler's, you know, you know, killing 10 million people? Well, I wouldn't say it's just as bad, morally, but in God's holiness, that one little white lie has offended it. That one little white lie has caused you to be guilty, apart from the fact that we're born with a sin nature as well. So what does the remainder of the chapter indicate about keeping the law? It's a broader question. Yes, we're saved by grace alone, but we'll have a heart to obey. Craig. Yeah. That's right. So no one keeps the law perfectly. We're all guilty because we've all broken the law. And if we say, oh, I've kept the law. I am all set. What does Paul say to that person? What did he say to the Pharisees? What did Jesus say to the Pharisees? Hypocrite. <laughs> right? There is no one that has kept the law perfectly except Jesus. And people that say they do are fooling themselves. They're lying to themselves. Why? Because they want to believe that they are perfect. Their own pride is saying, I'm okay, I'm good enough, I've done everything I can, God should accept that. And God says, I know the truth. I am the ultimate jury, because the jury, uh, the human juries that we have, they only have the evidence that's put in front of them by a prosecutor and a, and a defense attorney who are both trying to pivot for their own protection, accomplish their own means. But God is the perfect judge, and he's the jury, and he knows everything, and he knows that we have all sinned. And that brings us to Paul's argument in chapter 3, that no one is righteous apart from faith in Jesus. No one is justified except through him. Chapter 3 is heavy. Chapter 3 is dark. Chapters, end of chapter 1 and chapter 2 were dark too. These are dark chapters. 
Let's look at the the first question in chapter 3. Paul says right off the bat that the Jews have an advantage. He answers his own question. What advantage does the Jew have? He says, well, much in every way. They have the word of God. God gave his word to the Jewish people. Huge advantage. God talked to you, and he told you how to live and how to approach him. So in spite of this advantage that they had as recipients of God's word, are they better off than everyone else? No. Why is that? Verse 9. Because they're all sinners. We're all sinners. Not just the Jewish people, not just the Gentiles. Some of the Jewish people might have said, well, you know, the Gentiles are the ones that are sinners because, you know, we've been circumcised, so we're part of, the, we're part of God's covenant people. And Paul is destroying that argument. Verses 10 through 18 is this compilation of quotes from the Old Testament, mostly from Psalms and Isaiah. But if you could sum them up in one sentence, what would it be? Ty. Well, you're not like giving me any like sliver of hope there. I mean, like, how can I wiggle through that? Anybody else? That's good. Craig. Excellent. Anybody else? John. Yeah, Paul kind of did the summary for us in the first part of 23, right? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They've fallen short of his standard of where he is. Every human being is a wicked sinner. We're all totally depraved. And so like hammer blows on the coffin, those hammer just nailing the nails on that coffin down. There is no light at the end of this tunnel. There is no hope. Paul shows that the Old Testament is supporting his argument. The Old Testament was clear. Every person is a sinner, not just the Gentiles, Mr. Jew. All of us. This is the bad news of the gospel. All of us are sinners. This isn't an academic exercise. Being a sinner has serious consequences. It puts us in the crosshairs of God's wrath. And how does that leave us feeling. Desperate need for God's grace. I love that word desperate. Anybody else? Yeah. Can't be saved of our own accord. I can't do it. I'm not strong enough, smart enough, and I can't work hard enough. There's nothing I can do to save myself except spend eternity in hell. Yeah. So kind of a sense of, yeah, sense of wonder and gratefulness then. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. 
Move on to verse 19 in chapter 3. What, was, what is the purpose of the law? So this is kind of important for what we were talking about in chapter 2. Verse 19, what was the purpose of the law that is articulated there? To highlight sin. Yeah, good. What else? Lisa. Yeah, to, to use the word from the verse, it says to make every man accountable. Make us all accountable. To stop every mouth. No one can boast that they are good when you read this. It makes it clear that no one can measure up to God's standard. Accountability is kind of a key idea up in until this point in, in, the, in the book. In chapter 1, verse 20, it said, they are without excuse. That means they're accountable. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, you have no excuse. We are accountable. None of us measure up to God's standard. And the fourth question, what role does the law play then in justification? Let's look at verses 20 through 21. Let's read these. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So what is the role of the law in justification? In justification of sinners who have not kept the law. Diane. So we are saved by faith alone, but, the, but so what, you're, what are you saying about the law then? What are we saying about the law? That we cannot be I'm sorry, I missed that. We cannot, be by the law. we cannot be justified by the law. Tammy, did you have something to add? Exactly. Same thing, yeah. Yeah. Right. So we could say that the law plays no role in justification because we can't be declared righteous by keeping the law. It won't work. This doesn't contradict chapter two, verse 13. It actually is the next step in understanding that no one can perfectly keep the law except Jesus. We're gonna keep saying that, except Jesus. He's the only one. So if we can't do anything to become righteous, then what is the solution? How do we avoid God's wrath? Well, the answer is found in verses 24 and 25. After 23 says we've all sinned and fall short short of the glory of God, 24, and are justified, how? By his grace. This is how we become declared righteous, only because God is gracious to us. And that grace is given as a gift. And what is the form of the gift? Right in the text. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Justification is by grace through faith, and it's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus and what he did. So we have this fancy theological word, propitiation. I didn't use that in my vocabulary this week. I don't know if anybody else used propitiation this week. That's a, it's a more... It's not as common a word as something like you know, righteousness or, or justified. Um, we hardly use it in common English parlance, but it means a satisfaction of God's wrath. God's wrath is satisfied. 
The, the word in this noun form is only used one other place in the New Testament. It's in Hebrews 9.5. It refers to the mercy seat. Do you remember what that is? You have the Ark of the Covenant that sits in the back room of the tabernacle or the temple. The Ark of the Covenant has a little solid gold lid that is called the mercy seat. And this is the place where the high priest, one man, went into the Holy of Holies, one place, on the Day of Atonement, one day each year. And he took blood and he put it on the mercy seat. And that atoned for the sins of the people. It satisfied God's wrath because of the sins of the people for one year. What an unbelievable system we have. Not one person one day in one place once a year, but every person, any place, all the time, can access God. Why? Because of Jesus. So Paul's conclusion then is that we are saved, verse 28, by faith alone. I like the way the translators put this. Some of the some translations say we conclude that one is justified by faith. The ESV says we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. This word hold is a legal word today that we use. When a judge writes a legal decision, he gets to his conclusion and he says, therefore, we hold. Almost like... Um, and it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident. It's a, it's a judicial conclusion. So all of these other things that I said in the case, they all, you know, are like, those are like statements of fact or conclusions of law. But the holding, we hold this conclusion. That's the ultimate judicial conclusion. Paul is saying, this is the conclusion. We're only justified by faith. Nothing that we do can save us. Nothing. So faith is really important. Now what's the result? What do we do with the law as a result? Do we throw it out? It's no good. Let's get rid of it. Verse 31. What does Paul say about that? I heard something, but I didn't get it all. We uphold the law. Right. So I think we're talking here about the moral aspects of the law, not the ceremonial things, but it's saying, no, that the law serves a useful purpose because it helps us to understand what God's standard is. The requirements of the Old Testament law demonstrate the need for grace. The Old Testament law should have brought the sincere Jewish person to the point where they said to God, I can't do it. And then he sent Jesus, who could. So the law still plays a useful purpose. And the Jewish person in the Roman church probably is saying, oh, I thought the law was the answer all this time, and now I see it. And just to make sure that he, this, Roman, this Roman Jew understands the place of faith, he now gives some illustrations. In chapter 4, we see that justification, is illustri- justification by faith alone is illustrated by Abraham, also by David. So I actually answered the first question. Sorry, I did that again. 
So David and Abraham, two important characters, two important examples, because Abraham is the ultimate patriarch of the nation, and David was the ultimate king of the nation in the Jewish person's mind. What did Abraham believe? Verse 3. Says it right there. Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God. (coughs) What was the result of that faith, of that belief? It was counted to him as righteousness. Count is a word that we probably have used this this week, and it is a fairly common word, but here it has legal and financial significance. It's actually an accounting term in the Greek language. It means to credit to an account. In this particular situation, we see that faith is what's credited to Abraham's account. This is a direct quote from Genesis 15, by the way. Imagine if you um, wrote the check to your credit card company, $100, Visa, send it in. You get a statement the next month, you don't see the $100 there. You still owe the amount. And then you're talking to me on Sunday, and I go, the funniest thing happened. I got my credit card bill from Visa, and there was a $100 credit on it. I didn't send them any money. And you're going, what gives? How did you get that? That's what this is. This is God taking the payment of Jesus and putting it on my account. It was counted to Abraham as righteousness because he believed, not because of what he did. Abraham lived pre-law, by the way. So then we look at David and his example, and there's some verses quoted from the Psalms here. Who is the person that is blessed in verses 1 and 2? I'm sorry, in in verses 7 and 8. It's from Psalm 32, 1 and 2. The person who is blessed is the person who, Lynn? Yeah. What greater blessing is there than knowing that your sins are forgiven? Let's go to our next question. How did Abraham grow strong in faith? Verse 20. As he gave glory to God. Isn't that curious? We know from Ephesians 2 where faith comes from, right? Faith is a gift of God. So faith itself is a gift. And here we see Abraham's seedling of faith growing to a mature tree. Why? How? As he gave glory to God, as he waited for the accomplishment of God's promises in his life, he kept believing because he kept glorifying God. When we articulate God's glory, our faith grows. This is why, in part, our singing together in our worship services is so important because we are articulating truth that will increase our faith and our faith will grow from that little seedling based hanging desperately onto God's promises to a great big strong oak tree that embraces the promises of God. What did, what was he fully convinced of? What did Abraham believe in? I've kind of already said it, but verse 21. (laughs) Yes. So he was confident in God's ability 
I am able to do, and he was confident in God's sincerity. I will do what I said. So both the intention of doing it and the ability to do it are important, and Abraham believed both, that God was not only able to do what he said he would do, but he was good enough to do it, and he would do it, and he would make good on his promises, that God is faithful. I hope that encourages you, wherever you are today, whatever you're struggling with. Look at God's promises. Give glory to him. Have your faith grow as you look at God's promises. So the righteousness of, of God was given to Abraham because of his faith. That's the answer in verse 22. He, Abraham wasn't righteous by what he did, but because of who he believed. So the bell is rung. I have just two slides here that just tell us the conclusions from chapters one through four. So one takeaway here is the good news of the gospel isn't good until we know how bad the bad news is. The bad news is really bad, but the good news is really great. And the bad news is that each of us is a sinner and we can't save ourselves. That leaves us in a hopeless, desperate condition. We have to real, a person has to realize this to come to salvation. They have to realize that they cannot save themselves and there's nothing else that they can do. The good news is that Jesus is in the saving business. He came to seek and to save the lost, it says in the Gospels. And so what do we say about the Gospel? We see the Gospel is the answer to man's sin problem. The gospel is the answer. Let's tell people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these magnificent chapters that just tell us so articulately that we can't save ourselves, that show us our human condition of sinfulness, and that make it clear that faith is the answer. We thank you for the gift of faith that you've given to us, that you've declared us righteous before you because of the work of Jesus Christ. We ask that you'd help us to grow strong in faith as we give glory to you, that we would cling to your promises, knowing that you are both able to do what you promised and that you are faithful to do what you promised. We ask that you would just assist us now as we come before you as the congregation of Christ, that we would praise and worship you in the way you deserve that we'd make your name look great today, that we'd honor you through the way that we worship, the way that we listen and hear and obey and praise and give. We want our worship to please you today, Father. We ask it in the name of Jesus, on his authority.